thank you and welcome to the University of Sydney uh, this bright and sunny afternoon and to tonight's Sydney Ideas discussion on energy cultures in historical perspective and what we can learn for the future. Uh, my name is Christopher Wright and I'm a professor of organisational studies uh, in the University of Sydney Business School and leader of the Balanced Enterprise Research Network which is part of the Sydney Environment Institute. Uh, before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Okay, so this is the first Sydney Ideas event for 2016 uh, and the first of a full program of co-presented events uh, with uh, the Sydney Environment Institute. And so just take this moment to uh, note some upcoming events which may be of interest to you, uh, including the Small Changes Environmental Conversations uh, series of talks, uh, the first of which will be happening on Wednesday the 23rd of March entitled Coastal Vulnerability to Sea Level Rise. So in the theme of uh, environmental issues, that might be one to, to watch out for. And also just to signal that there is uh, a, a talk on the 30th of March uh, with Mark Butler, the Shadow Minister for Climate Change here at the University of Sydney. Uh, so uh, watch the website of the Sydney Environment Institute for more details on that. So tonight we're going to discuss humanity's use of energy and how societies have dealt with energy needs and energy transitions over time. Uh, this is clearly a critical contemporary concern given rising energy demands from a growing global population and of course the climate crisis which we now face uh, which has resulted in large part from our reliance on fossil fuel based energy. We also see signs of an emerging energy revolution based upon renewable energy generation and storage, which some argue will result in a reinvention of energy production and use. So some of the questions we'll hopefully discuss tonight include what we can learn from past transitions in energy use and how likely is a post-carbon energy system and what might it look like. Our speaker tonight... Uh, is an international authority in the field of international environmental history. Professor Christoph Musch. Uh, Professor Musch is a joint director of the Rachel Carson Centre for Environment and Society and a chair in American Culture and Transatlantic Relations at the University of Munich, one of Germany's oldest universities. The Rachel Carson Centre is one of the most significant centres in the world uh, for environmental studies, so it's a great pleasure to have Professor Mausch here tonight to discuss the issue of energy use from a historical perspective, as well as tease out possible future scenarios for our own use of energy. Uh, before we get into it, uh, apologies for the sunshine and the brightness. Uh, uh, the blinds are malfunctioning, so unfortunately there will be uh, problems in darkening the room. Uh, the running order tonight is uh, that uh, Professor Mausch will speak for around 40 minutes or so. Uh, that'll then be followed by Q&A. Uh, there is a microphone for questions that will be set up. And just to, to note that tonight's uh, lecture and, and Q&A will be recorded uh, for ABC Radio National. So if you are going to ask a question, it's important that you use the microphone. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Christoph Melsch. Thank you. 
very much, Christopher. Thank you, Meredith and Michelle. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. It's amazing to hear that you apologize for the weather. It's, <laughs> it's great to have the sun. I'm actually coming from south of Munich. and When I look out of the window, all I see is snow. So that's where I came from yesterday. Um, this is my second time in Australia, but the first time was just a vacation. So this is my first talk ever in Australia. And I don't know whether you often have German lectures, but if you have, you know that Germans always start with an apology, not with a joke like the Americans. Uh, and I have to, I have to apologize uh, after hearing Christopher that I might be talking to you about you know what a post-carbon uh, future might look like. I will be very happy to discuss this in the discussion, in the questions and answers, but my, my talk will be very historical. And you see how historical in a second. I'm going way back in time. Look at energy transitions in world history, in American culture and history. Look at Germany. And, um, well, it's not really the fourth part, lessons from the past. I will talk about lessons from the past in the end, but I'm going to weave into my talk lessons as I go along. Um, I have 70 slides. <clears throat> So I'm going to move forward quickly. I've got a little bit more than one minute for two slides. In the beginning was the sun. <laughs> I wouldn't forget that. We mustn't forget that all energy is sun energy. It doesn't matter whether it's our muscles. You know, when we carry something, it's only, it only exists because we are, we've eaten something that was produced by the sun. Plants or we've eaten animals who have eaten plants that were produced by the sun. Here is a map of migrations across the globe, and you can see that uh, humans, and we, that's what we assume, started somewhere in East Africa. And I recently read an article, actually, from in November, Geophysical American Geophysical Society's conference, uh, that explains that probably, with very high likelihood, human brains became big um, tens of thousand years ago in this area because humans were able to catch fire from, a, from lava in a, in a rift in that part of the world. Fire is, the, of course, the, the prime energy in the world. And if you imagine uh, you live in, in Africa, you can actually, if, it's, if the climate is warm, you can actually survive when it's cold and when it's warm. But without fire, you cannot move. You can see, like, at, um, 20,000 years ago or so, people uh, moved across the Bering Street where it's very cold. You needed fire. You needed fire energy to move. Migrations and the population of the whole globe has something to do with energy. Um, and that's one of the lessons that we can learn. When energy rises... Uh, the population rises. In this case, you can also see that migration is at the center. Here is fire, and you can see that on this picture that um, you need more than just flames. Uh, the Earth is the only planet that actually has fire. We know there are planets that have lightning or planets that have lava, but that is not fire. For fire, you actually need something like wood or something like coal, some plants that actually have oxygen in it that burns. And this book by Richard Wrangham argues that the, you can define humans as not as carnivores, not as meat eaters, even though meat eating was certainly one thing that uh, could only work, you know, except for insects, because we, we can't 
uh, you know, we, we, we could not uh, eat big animals without fire, but, but meat-eating is something, is, is something that defines humans to a certain extent, but not really. But what he argues is that humans can, are, can be called cookivores rather than carnivores. So the, we are the only creature on this planet that can actually cook. Um, when humans, here you can see this image of, I think it's from Egypt, with uh, wheat on it and with cows or oxen. When humans started agriculture, a lot of things changed. And archaeologists will tell you that this is a different type of energy. Um, people could actually settle in very small areas. You didn't need, you know, hunter-gatherers had to go all the way out. And uh, they could not live in very small places because there would not be enough food in one place. But as soon as you grew agriculture, there was a new source of energy and settlements became more dense. There were all sorts of problems involved. You can see archaeologists will tell you that people are shorter in, in, these, in these areas where they only eat uh, a very small number of different uh, corns or wheat types. Uh, they're smaller, they are more, there's more disease, but there's something else going on because of the uh, ability to be in one place, the populations rose very quickly. So the multiplication of the population has a lot to do with the availability of energy in one space. The sun is not only responsible for uh, the ability of humans to have fire and uh, to have plants, but it's also responsible for the ability of humans to sail. You know, because the water... Uh, I don't have to explain to you in detail <laughs> astronomy, but uh, land heats faster th than water, and uh, you also know that ships uh, use this, use the wind, which is different, has a different speed and a different direction, uh, whether it's in moderate climate areas or in tropical areas. It goes from the east to the west in tropical areas. It goes from the west to the east in others, but it has a lot to do also with the sun. I like this image, which shows a kettle and a fireplace. Uh, it explains something that is very basic, it seems to me, but everything, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a nuclear power station or a car uh, with a cylinder in it, uh, or a kettle that heats uh, you know, um, tea, it's always the same principle. Energy is heated up. Here you can see the fireplace with wood at the bottom, and then you've got the... Uh, water kettle on the top, and you could turn that into a steam engine, you know, with steam coming out. But this is the principle of energy production in history. Energy goes back, energy production goes back for thousands of years when you look at water. Water power has been used for thousands of years. This image shows you a water mill. It's an anti uh, from antiquity. I, I think it's ancient. Uh, I, I can't see exactly where it's from, but I should wear my glasses, but I, I can tell you that this uh, is interesting, this image, because of the cockwheels and the axles, uh, and the fact that with watermills, people were able to develop mechanisms that turn water energy into, you know, the energy to grind. So the mechanics of this was very, very important. Studying the mechanics was more important than the energy itself. Water energy itself is not available all around the globe, it's very obvious, you know, in the wintertime uh, it may freeze. Uh, in the summer there may not be enough water. And in many parts of the world there are no fast-flowing streams. But the mechanics are important. And a lot of inventions that have been made in history are linked to water mills or, for that matter, to windmills. 
Horace Walpole once said, the best sun we have is made of Newcastle coal, and I'm determined never to reckon upon any other. You all know the, uh, <clears throat> the saying, coals, carrying coals to Newcastle, is that what it's called? And do you know where it comes from? It comes from uh, the fact that coal came to London by boat, by ship, from Newcastle. And uh, so it, it might have come from the hinterland close to Newcastle, but for the Londoners it was always Newcastle coal. What I find interesting is why did England industrialize early? It has a lot to do with coal. You know, coal was really, really important for the rise of the population, for, the, for, the, for demographics. It was also important for uh, the wealth of England in the 19th century. It was really important for industrialization. Uh, and why did that happen? There's a very simple answer, and that's one of the lessons that we can also learn. The answer is the scarcity of wood. If you had cut down all the wood in England that was available at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, you couldn't have started the Industrial Revolution. Coal had so much more density. Basically, all the, you know, all the uh, plants that you can think of that you can burn, wood or peat or um, lignite or coal or oil or gas, they are very similar because they all go back to plants, but they have a different density, and the density has a lot to do with the duration of the time that they've been sitting in the ground. And coal has so much more density than wood, and it, it can do things that wood could not do. This I find particularly fascinating, what I call a revolution in house styles. And when today we talk about, you know, in order to transform our, uh, you know, to, to, um, to find a smart solution uh, in, in face of climate change, to have low energy houses or even energy plus houses, we have to change our house styles. And we say this is almost impossible, you know, you have to insulate, it's expensive. Look back in history, look at the medieval times, for instance. This is a medieval house with wood in the center. Um, we know from, since the, about the 13th century there have been chimneys in houses and they were usually in the very center. You know, there was just a hole in the ceiling and you had a fire in the center. You could, this, was, this was great for many, many reasons, not only because it killed insects, because it gave you warmth, it uh, was uh, available for cooking, you could cure bacon, etc. You could sit around the fire, it even, even uh, was something that scared animals away. So this was, this was fascinating and it worked for hundreds of years uh, in the Middle Ages. We know very little about uh, the transition here to a different house style that you can see on the next picture. This house style is one where you've got chimneys, but you can see that the house looks very different. You cannot just have one room because coal would uh, be too hot. You couldn't heat it without a chimney. Uh, it would be, you know, it's sulfuric, so it would be toxic. You couldn't sit around a coal fire like you could sit around the wood fire. And uh, the, all the major records were actually burned um, in 1666 with the London fire. We, we assume that there would have been archives that could have told us how old the first chimneys are. But one thing is important to remember that it took not just a few years, not just a few dozen years to develop a chimney. It took hundreds of years to develop a good working chimney. So this transition was a very slow transition from wood and wood type, wood, uh, wood uh, houses that used wood to houses that used coal. So we can learn that a revolution in house styles is something uh, that um, 
we might, that we probably forgot about, but it changed the architecture. You all of a sudden had different types of houses, you know, you had different types of rooms in a house, you had a, a fireplace, you changed your living conventions, the, the way you live changed because if you have a chimney, um, but it also changed, you know, you all, all of a sudden have multiple rooms, so your lifestyle changed entirely with, because of coal. I love this picture for two reasons. It shows three women in Scotland. It's about 100 years old. They are carrying peat on their back. It's interesting because it's women who are carrying the peat, and often women were the ones who were gathering, uh, let's say, wood, or in this case, peat for energy. It's interesting for another reason, because this is only 100 years old, and in Scotland it was typical in the more remote areas. You know, We think of, of uh, coal being the 19th century uh, energy, but way into the 20th century in many areas of the world, well, actually today, um, 40% of humans are still using wood, but um, <clears throat> this really shows you that uh, this may be labor-intensive, but peat was for free, and if you have uh, woman power, man power to carry and to dig for peat, why not take the free energy from, in, from your backyard? Uh, I can tell you from my own personal experience, I was cycling through Ireland in the 1980s and I ended up in the north of Ireland in a, in a very remote valley where every house uh, was just heating, had just a fireplace and the people were heating the peat that they uh, harvested in the 1980s. And more than 50% of households in Ireland still used peat in, up until the 1950s. A lot changed with the Newcomen engine. Here is the Newcomen engine of 1712. If you look at the amount of coal that was produced in, uh, let's say, 1700 versus 1800, it multiplies by more than 20. More than 20 times more coal is being mined within this one century. But people were, were mining for coal, you know, before, the, before 1700, they were mining for coal in 1500. But... Um, one of the reasons why this was possible was the Newcomen engine that is basically forgotten. We all know James, Scott, uh, James um, Watt, um, but Newcomen is, is basically forgotten, even though he invented a machine that was able to help take coal out of the ground by taking water out of the ground. You can see this construction here. Uh, it was, this machine would lift 12 times per minute 10 gallons each time. 10 gallons of water. And why did you need to do that? Because the further down you dig with coal, the more water comes up. So the problem was not the, the high amount of coal that existed in England, or for that matter in Australia today, but the problem was how do you get this coal out without, you know, without, being, without the groundwater flooding it. So this Newcomen machine was really essential. We keep forgetting that these technologies were really essential in the energy transitions. So the age of coal and steam, this is a symbol of the age of coal and steam of the 19th century. It's a, a railroad, and it shows you um, certain pride in, you know, in, the, in, the, in the chimney. It's, it's, it's a beautiful landscape and a train in the front with a smoking chimney. And uh, while we say this is the age of coal and steam, the 19th century, we, we all know that the 20th century is also still the age of coal and steam, not just the age of oil. 
Here is a picture of some of the earliest vehicles, and you can see on the right, very much like the kettle that you see, saw before, this is a um, cylinder, a car cylinder. Uh, but the difference is that you don't put water in the cylinder, and then you have the steam provide power, but you put the fuel in there that provides direct energy. So you've got a much higher energy density. This is why oil is so different from steam. Of course, it also produces all sorts of, um, how do you call it, um, exhausts. I like these two pictures that show the Chicago World Fair in the early 20th century. They show electricity, and there was this electricity hype. I think it's important to remember that there was something fascinating in some of these energy transitions. And if we ask ourselves why don't people you know, drive electric cars today, uh, it's not immediately seen as sexy to drive an electric car. You, know, that's, you, have, to, you, you have to drive further in order to, to, to fill the battery up. It's expensive. There's not, not necessarily, it's not immediately... Um, clear why you should have one, but electricity, you know, when, when the transition to electricity was possible, I come from Bavaria, you know, Ludwig II, the king of Bavaria, who uh, drowned in the lake where I live, he was one of the first, he really wanted to be one of the first people in the world to use electricity, he put electricity in the caves close to one of his castles, people were fascinated by electricity, you can get some of this fascination if you just look at these photos uh, of the World Fair, uh, there's a bulb on one of the photos that's eight feet high, the largest searchlight in the world. Electricity made it possible. You know, you could actually plant an electricity generator. You could plant a generator next to a coal mine or next to a waterfall, let's say next to Niagara Falls and then distribute it. So the, the availability of, you know, it was basically electromagnetism that was discovered and the availability of electricity or the idea of invention of electricity you, uh, the ability to use it and transport it made it something that became that spread all around the world and that uh, had a major attraction and if you're an alien today and you would fly around the globe at night with there's nights anywhere you would immediately see a major difference since you know 1800 when the globe would have appeared very dark versus today when there's so many lights light sources all around our globe and I look going to America, energy culture is the case of America, and I'm always asking, you know, where does America's appetite for energy come from? I don't really have a good answer, but here you can see the U.S. uses 11 times more energy than the U.K., but has only five times the people. Uh, this map is probably interesting for you as Australians because you can see that there are very few countries, this, these are the numbers from 2010, that use as much energy as the United States, Canada, Australia, some of the Arab countries, Finland and Norway, the only country that actually uses more, I don't know whether you can see it on the map, the most dark country on here is Iceland. And uh, I was in Iceland for the first time in my life last year. And the interesting thing about Iceland is, of course, you know, it's a big island with very few people. It's cold there. It's fascinating because you've got uh, snow and glaciers on one side, but you've got your hot water coming out. You can actually go on a hike uh, for several miles and you end up in a, in a swimming pool that with hot water, where the hot water comes out of the mountains, or the oldest Icelandic swimming pool, because they have this energy, natural energy, from the volcanoes. And um, so uh, that's one of the reasons why Iceland is using so much energy. energy. But of course, Australia and, um, and the United States and Canada are quite far up there. 
the energies of conquest. This picture shows the three ships that were used by Columbus. And uh, what I'd like to show with these ships is not just, you know, they are sail ships, they've used the energy of the wind, which of course is sun energy, um, but the power of energy that was used was also, is not just a symbol of power, but it actually represents the power of the colonizers. They had the power to move. They also, by the way, had the power, of course, to use gunpowder. But uh, with gunpowder and with uh, the energy they used uh, f for their ships, they were able to, you know, to uh, go on a conquest of the United, what was later to become the United States here with these ships. I'm showing you this picture of a watermill in Sleepy Hollow, and watermills would have looked like this with very small wheels for a very long time. We think of the United States as the prototype, you know, the energy. Uh, Americans have been using more energy than others all the time. They seem to be the progressive country par loss. This is absolutely not the case in the 19th century. In the mid-19th century, they would have used much more wood than coal. England was far ahead, and they would have used a lot of water power. And what I found intriguing is when you look at this picture, north versus south. The north shows an industry, um, shows a factory with a stream right next to the factory. The south shows cotton. We know that uh, there were a lot of cotton plantations in the south in the United States. There was industry in the north. And we have all sorts of explanations, cultural explanations. We say, you know, there's a, you know, people uh, were slaveholders and they had the opportunity to, uh, to use uh, slave power to to harvest uh, the cotton, but I think as an environmental historian, we sh uh, and it becomes very evident, we should not forget that it would, it would have been impossible to industrialize in the South because there were no streams that could be used. You need streams with high uh, fast-flowing waters like you had in the North, where all the textile industry is located in places like Lowell, in northeast England, there were these streams. So as an environmental historian, I have a very different look at American culture from what, a, what an American social historian would, would see in this picture. Um, I will jump over this one, but it's, a, it's a, about a 100-year-old picture of horses that are uh, used. Horses were still used to a large extent around 1900 in the United States. So America was a latecomer, not a forerunner in industrialization. At the same time, they were able to spread very quickly and spread and tra transition in energy cultures very quickly. You see here on the left a windmill, um, that uh, an American windmill vis-a-vis a, -vis a uh, Dutch windmill on the right. The Dutch windmill takes a long time to build. It's made of stone. And the American windmill can actually build, be built within one day. It's, it's made of wood. And you can, you, know, you can transport it easily. It was needed in the prairie because in the prairie what you needed was water. And so you established these windmills very quickly. Within a short time there were you know, assembly line type uh, uh, windmills. And so uh, this, they look very provisional. And they, they are provisional. They are not around anymore. But they were very helpful in settling the American West. I will jump over this also very quickly. It's uh, the Philadelphia Centennial P 
people were really fascinated with steam power already in 1876 in America. And they, uh, if you read reports by people who visited the centennial, they were all going on the railways. There were two types of railway tracks. You could actually take the railway to the centennial, and here there was a track on the, uh, on the grounds of the centennial, and people were just going round and round, and many times because they loved the railroad. So since 1876, you find this enthusiasm. Um, but here you can see something that we often pass over as well in history, and that is the sudden rise of accidents that comes with many transitions to, from one energy to the other. I mean, you all know Chernobyl. You all can think of Fukushima. Uh, of course, the extent of the risks is much larger with nuclear energy. But uh, when you look back in history, you can see that with the arrival of steam, uh, there were multiple accidents. This picture shows you the explosion of the Orinoco in the early 19th century, where more than 100 people died on board of this ship on the Mississippi. And uh, there were hundreds of people really dying uh, in the early 19th century. But you can also see something as soon as you have good regulation, uh, the number of accidents goes down rapidly. There was uh, regulation introduced, I think, in the 1840s. Same with mining accidents. This, shows, this photo shows you the, uh, a mining accident, very famous mining accident in 1907. It took until 1941. Many people died in this mining accident in Marion County, West Virginia. It took until 1941 before the Americans introduced uh, regulations for safety regulations and, uh, they were, and also uh, were stopping child labor in these mines. This book afloat on the Ohio. The book cover shows you what I call new cultures of progress and risk. The risk is something that you see when you look at it because you see the smog. But people in the 19th century wouldn't have seen the health risk. They would have seen the progress in this picture of chimneys. If you read 19th century novels or if you read 19th century texts and early 20th century, people are fascinated Factories and smokestacks are not seen as something that pollutes the air. They were seen as something that gives you a new type of lifestyle. I mean, after all, you can all of a sudden, with steam, with what cold gives you, what this new type of energy gives you, uh, in, uh, is, is enormous. You can all of a sudden move around you know, with a ship quickly, with a railroad quickly. You can cross the ocean very quickly. You have energy, uh, electricity, and a lot of things that you didn't have before. So for people in the 19th century and early 20th century, these smokestacks have a very different meaning. Of course, they, uh, they brought risk, but the energy transition was, in a way, greeted by many people. And the country, city, dichotomy or the, you know, the, the, uh, the difference between country and city was often symbolized with a smokestack. These two sh photos show you um, oil fields. Again, something that is forgotten and is, is quite a horrible story in a way is that in the early times for several decades when oil was discovered um, in the early 20th century in America, about half of the oil was spilt. So it, was, it would have been Often it was impossible. We know some oil companies were not capable. They didn't have enough wood to store it in the ground. You would, you would have wooden containers and uh, dig a hole, put the oil in wooden containers, but there was often not, in, not even enough wood, so they would just cover up the, the oil basins with wood, but they wouldn't uh, make sure that it wouldn't enter the groundwater. So one of the things that happened in this particular case of energy transition was that oil would pollute the groundwater from early on. I think it's also interesting to see this uh, because um, it, I called this slide Big Corporations and the Rise of Oil. Uh, Rockefeller didn't make his money by producing oil, by digging it out of the 
ground. He made it, like most Americans made money in the, since the 19th century, by processing and distributing. He realized that if you build a big refinery, that's how you make money. It was the same with food processing. You don't make the money by, by producing, you know, having a hundred or a thousand cattle. You make a lot of money if you have a, a factory where you process the food and then you... you uh, ship it out. So there was a very, very early on in these energy transitions, uh, it went from being something local, locally produced to something consumed in a very large space. This photo from National Geographic shows a beautiful, I think, 1950s car, uh, and uh, behind it, a uh, whole, I think it could be 1930s actually, uh, but it shows a, an oil basin and uh, electricity mass. I think it's, it's an iconic picture. Uh, you could actually love the car and the electricity mass and the oil. Today we look at this and we think of pollution, but people would not necessarily have thought that at the time. Of course, suburban energy consumption made a major difference. This, these two photos show a phonograph and a car and the car was basically introduced in households in America in 1950, the phonograph in 1920. And uh, if you look at the amount of energy that was used since the 1910s and 1920s, it was enormously high. Um, the next photo shows you a picture from agriculture. Of course, with the arrival of oil, you also had the availability of tractors, of machines that would work the land. And something complex happened at the time. Just imagine, if you were a farmer who farms, the, let's say, wheat, has some cows who need to have footer, or you have some horses who do the work, you need a lot of space. You need space to produce the food for yourself. You need the space to produce the food for the cows, you need the, uh, for the oxen who work your fields. You need the... Uh, the um, space for the actual field, for the crops. But once you have um, oil or other types of energy, except for human and animal energy, you don't need that much space anymore. Instead of horses, you have the oil that is transported in from somewhere else, or you have electricity that's coming in from somewhere else, so you need much less space. What happens is you use the space to produce more goods. You can produce much more, but the result is a chapter that we often again forget, and that is that uh, after a time of scarcity, um, there became a time of abundance, but the time of abundance brought the prices down so dramatically, and I think we, we've seen this, we're seeing it now, you know, oil prices are going down. Prices and economic factors are really important in the energy sector, and they can bring, uh, you know, they can turn if uh, a time of scarcity into a time of abundance, but abundance does not necessarily mean that it's a good time. It was a bad time for the farmers. It was a horrible time for animals. Millions of animals had to be slaughtered because they were no longer used. It was a bad time also because a lot of crops, especially uh, you know maize and corn, were now used because they were overproduced. They were used instead of wood or coal to, uh, for energy sources. So uh, if you look at, into the time when agriculture... Uh, made changes, you can see this on this photo, from horse-drawn vehicles to tractors, there was a lot going on that also had an impact on soil ecologies, for instance. You know how long it takes to rebuild soil? It takes hundreds or thousands of years, thousands of years to rebuild a couple of millimeters of soil. 
But with these big tractors, uh, that they, they have a lot of weight. They uh, are also they, they, they bring progress, but they also bring they're very ambivalent because they also start to destroy the soil. And one of the reasons uh, there were there was more than one reason, but one of the main reasons why the biggest disaster in American history happened, the biggest natural or so-called natural disaster, the Dust Bowl, has a lot to do with the uh, introduction of these big vehicles that destroyed the topsoil uh, in in the prairie. Um, and this is why the Dust Bowl happened, and, um, and hundreds of thousands of people had to leave and went from the center of America to the west. Well, America is the most highly powered society in world history. On the left, you see a suburban house, and on the right, you see a colonial town. And I think it's about correct to say that a colonial time used about as much energy as a suburban house in the 1970s. And we've got a rising addiction to gadgets and appliances. We, you can see these uh, calculators and cameras, and today we've got iPods. Um, I haven't looked into Australian numbers or very recent numbers, but I looked into uh, a rise of energy consumption in England from 1970 to 2010 by 700%, because, mainly because of these gadgets. All, yeah, I mean, you need, a, you need a toaster. How much energy do you think a toaster needs? Running this toaster on this photo requires the same amount of energy as a 14-horsepower motor. You couldn't show this anymore, <laughs> a Volkswagen. <laughs> in, 19, uh, in the early 1970s, there was an oil crisis in the United States, and uh, Volkswagen used this ad to show, you know, this ad shows a man who uh, seemingly is trying to commit suicide because he can't afford the oil from the pump anymore, but uh, Volkswagen used it for a clever ad to buy Volkswagens because they used less gas than the average uh, um, uh, Cadillac, whatever people were driving, Ford, etc. This was actually a unique moment for the Americans. You could have, at this point, when there was not enough energy available, you could have gone for a change. And for a short time, it looked like there was a change. The average car used had six miles per hour less as a high speed, and it used 15. It went 15 miles per gallon instead of 13. Uh, so people were, uh, you know, the industry was reacting for a short time. But President Ford didn't do what he could have done at that point. That is, think about demand and change something about demand. He only thought about supply. And he thought of, you know, his voters and that what they wanted was, you know, more energy and cheap energy. So he suggested a, his proposal at the time, if you read it, it's quite incredible. He wanted 200 nuclear power stations, 200 or 150 new, uh, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> stations that would produce synthetic oil, refineries that would produce synthetic oil, etc. So he had a master plan for growing rather than, you know, using the lesson of the oil crisis as something that would change consumption, consumer behavior, he did the opposite and just changed the supply. Here you see the figures of gasoline consumption since 1945, and it did indeed go down. You see the first peak and then a sharp drop in 1973 after the oil crisis, but then very soon thereafter it went up again. And uh, this could probably be in Australia as well. I'm not sure, but this is a this is a mall with a car park from um, aerial view, and this one shows you um, 
drive-ins. You can even have a, you can get married in a drive-in in America. You can have a drive-in funeral home or buy a donut. Uh, for Germans, this is still very funny. I don't know what it's like for you as Australians, but we find this very weird. <laughs> so, an extremely high availability of energy and space have played a major role in American history, culture, and politics. You know, when you have a lot of space, and Americans had enormous amounts of space, Jefferson, uh, when he uh, had Lewis and Clark cross the continent in the late 18th century, said it's going to take a hundred generations before we can settle that continent. There was this belief that the continent was basically endless. There was a belief that there was an abundance of space. Of course, we know it didn't take a hundred generations. It took three generations for the whole continent to be settled in the 1890s. But the idea, the belief that you've got abundance uh, of space makes all the difference. Um, I don't know. I have to tell you a joke here. Uh, <clears throat> if I can still remember it, but it's one of my favorite jokes, so, so I, I should remember it. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a true story. Uh, a, a German uh, farmer is visited, a Bavarian farmer is visited by a, a distant relative who, whose parents or grandparents um, had moved to Texas, and he goes to Bavaria, knocks at the door of his distant cousin. They look alike, they've got the same last name, and they are very happy to see each other, and they, they remember that they were once one family, they all lived in Bavaria, and the Bavarian is really proud, and he says, look at my farm. He goes all the way from here, and he points like a couple of hundred meters, all the way to this wood over there, it's all my fields. The American says, um, uh, I'm also a farmer, I'm a farmer in Texas. When I leave in the morning and I drive all day long, by the end of the day, I haven't reached the end of my fields. So he's bragging. And the German says, I know exactly what you're talking about. I used to have a car like that. <laughs> but this story shows you, uh, I think, a couple of things. It shows you that, the, uh, that there was uh, the, the uh, amount of space that is available in America is huge in comparison to Europe. Uh, and you can explain a lot. And the, the belief in, in abundance, the belief that in endlessness of uh, uh, energy and space. The other thing that you see here is that uh, you have a lot of capital-intensive jobs because of an abundance of resources. Technological in innovations have contributed to the uh, rise of energy consumption in America. And, of course, uh, cultural factors such as consumerism have played a major role in energy consumption because you need somebody to advertise for these, all these gadgets. Why do you need two toasters? Okay. So um, the other thing that I find interesting is that Americans have hardly ever faced periods of energy scarcity with the exception of world wars when it was deliberate, actually. They... Um, Made, uh, made this obligatory for, for households to use less energy because they needed it for the war effort. But uh, the oil crisis is the only other um, period. The transition from one energy type to a new one is often considered to be an improvement, um, more and cheaper energy. I think we should remember that as well, but it's not always the case. Um, and we should also remember that there's an increased risk. You've seen this with the mining and with the steam and increased risks that challenges um, some of the assumptions. The U.S. continues to consume more power per capita than any other country. 
And I will read this to you by David Suzuki and Anita Gordon. In a world driven by economics, the ecological services performed by a standing forest, cleansing the air, moderating weather and climate, preventing erosion and flooding, supporting animal and plant communities have no meaning. Now I'm getting to Germany, which is going to be a little bit shorter. You see, uh, this is the symbol of Bavaria. You know, the Bavarian governor likes to say, you know, we are the uh, government. I'm not a Bavarian, but I happen to live there, so I have to listen to this all the time. Uh, we are the country of lederhosen and laptops. What is unique about the German case? One thing that is unique is uh, the high amount of coal and you see here, this is actually, you see on the right, this eastern Germany, you've got a very, very high amount of lignite. And um, I was actually intrigued. I, I, was, I didn't have any relatives in eastern Germany, but I did want to visit the GDR. You know, it's the other Germany it was very, it was almost impossible for us as Westerners to go to the, to the east. And I was intrigued to visit uh, east Germany, but everybody who visited east Germany realized how smoggy it was. And uh, one of the reasons was, of course, the brown coal that was used, the lignite. And this is important, you know. I think it's important for Australia as well. When you have an energy source like coal and you have a lot of it, why would you want to leave it in the ground? It's cheap, you know, it, may, it makes economic sense, and it's much more difficult to say, I'm going to change if you have a lot of relatively free or, or cheap energy available. The other thing that I think is uh, unique about Germany is the very strong anti-nuclear power movement, uh, the strong green movements in general. And uh, Germany was not the first one, not the first nation that had strong anti-nuclear movements. France was certainly early. America was early and was um, more encompassing. But, but I think you have to take politics into account as well and um, topography or uh, political regimes. For instance, in France, you have a central government. So countercultures uh, and regional power are not as strong. I think uh, one of the things I, I, I'm, I'm realizing more and more as I think about energy is that energy is always regional or local, and politics is always regional or local. And the power comes not out of national frameworks or international um, uh, regulations alone, it has a lot to do with what's happening, what's happening on the ground. And in Germany, you've got very strong power centers all in the, what you would call the periphery. You've got, you know, it's a country that was united at a late point, so you've got many, many centers, regional centers. I come from southwest Germany. We have a very different sense. We are very anti-Prussian, you know, anti-Berlin anti in a way. And the same is true for, for Bavaria. We ignore Bavaria, even though they are our neighbor. Uh, so there, there's a strong regionalism. And um, Joachim Ratka, one of the most eminent environmental historians in the world, says that nuclear power uh, was, was rejected by Germany also because uh, we were not a nuclear power. France was a nuclear power, America was a nuclear power, so there was no affinity to, to nuclear um, power stations. Why should we build nuclear power stations? Uh, one thing that uh, I want you to know, which also, you would probably not read in books, is that Germans stopped planning for new projects, for no, more nuclear projects, as early as 1982. Everybody talks about, you know, what's happening today. Uh, Germany decided after Fukushima that we wouldn't do um, <coughs> nuclear power stations anymore, but the reality is we stopped much earlier. And there's another reality. We knew very early on 
that we had a problem with uh, where to put the nuclear waste. There was no solution. And you can read government memoranda from the 70s, and everybody knew that this was going to be a problem, and there was, it seemed like an unsolvable problem. And one of the reasons, there's very little transparency. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, nuclear power was pushed was because the industry knew about the risk and they didn't want to open that box. Because it was clear that if you open that box and you start to find, because there are other types of nuclear energy that would have been much more safe. There could have been different types of reactors and if you had invested in different types of reactors at the time, you would have had alternatives. But the, the industry was really afraid and more afraid than in previous uh, times uh, that that if this would uh, enter the public, that, um, that uh, the whole energy, you know, transition to nuclear energy would be stopped. So it was, I would call it a conspiracy of silence. This is an old picture of uh, a man who is getting, I think, uh, zap out of trees. Uh, and the reason why I'm showing this is one of the biggest debates in German environmental history is one about wood shortage. There are two different factions. One faction says there was not enough wood and therefore, you know, um, we had to switch to coal. The other faction says there was always enough wood, but it was politicized. And there were two groups that politicized the wood. The peasants, for one, because they drove their, you know, you can see here, they used, uh, they used the trees in multiple ways. They drove the cattle or the pigs in the, in the forest to feed. Uh, and on, on the other hand, the aristocracy, and we're talking about the 18th century, and they used this for politics as well. So the idea was that uh, you actually, in the, in the 18th century, you had two groups who wanted to use the forest and they both argued there was a shortage of wood. I mean, especially the, the aristocracy argued, we don't have enough wood, and therefore the peasants have to leave the wood. And I think this, this argument of scarcity, if you go through uh, energy transitions, the argument of scarcity is one that appears again and again and again. Look at coal, for instance. In 1900, the, uh, the coal production in Germany tripled between 1890 and 1910. And yet somebody even like Max Weber said, you know, uh, we, uh, we, are, we are facing a shortage of coal. There was no, no shortage of coal, but there's this discourse that uh, is very, very important and that you find a lot of times I would be very, very critical, and as a cultural historian and an environmental historian, I think we have to be critical of these discourses of scarcity. People say we have to switch from one energy to the other because it's scarce. Uh, there are often political reasons to declare scarcity. So... Um, oh, this one is interesting because it shows something that you might not immediately see on this photo, but it's, it's, a, it's a train with uh, it's a railroad with a, with a beautiful landscape in the back, and the landscape is an aristocratic meadow, you know, with a, with a big, probably manor house. But so, uh, actually, the railroad, the steam, uh, and the railroad were symbols, you know, anti anti aristocratic symbols in the 19th century. Progress was on the side of the of the laborer. This is in Bavaria. It's not so far from where I live. Um, it's a, it's a water, water power station. And uh, it just reinforced what I said before about regionalism. Uh, in Bavaria, there's a lot of water power. And you know, for instance, that Austria is using almost entirely for its energy supply it's a vast amount of, of, of water power. They are now inventing themselves as green. In the beginning, they used water power because they used water power because water, water power was available. Now they're saying we're so green because we're using water power. But... Um, uh, 
it's been used politically as well in Bavaria. Uh, the Bavarians in the 19th century said, uh, let's switch to water power because they had water. And they, dis- they, they, they in, in these discourses, they said, well, the Ruhr area and the northern uh, Germany, they are, uh, you know, on the Prussians, they all use coal and they used the dirty coal. We used the clean water. So you can see how these energies were also have had connotations, uh, political connotations. They were used by factions. Now, uh, you've all heard about energy transitions and about what we call ökostrom. So instead of atomic energy, we are hoping to use more um, renewables in the future. Not only in recent decades, but throughout early modern and modern history, energy has been a highly political and contested issue in Germany, more so than in most other countries. You saw that in the case of the wood scarcity, but you see, also see this in this politicized water power uh, discourse. The history of power is a history of high hopes and high anxieties, enthusiasm and fear. Uh, I think it's important always to look not just at the politics, not just at the technologies, not just at engineering uh, technological possibilities, but also at cultures. What we feel about a new energy is very important. If you want to change something, um, the culture changes. Our cultures have to change. Cultures have been central in changing from one energy resource to another, but they also it, come, it may come with fears or with anxieties. With its new focus on renewable energies, the German government has chosen a promising path. That's my own opinion, uh, albeit for the wrong reasons. I think the reasons were Fukushima. If you look at uh, the red-green government of Schröder and Fischer, they decided to uh, fade out nuclear energy, but then Angela Merkel came in and uh, you know, prolonged uh, nuclear power again, and it was only Fukushima that made uh, the conservative government of Angela Merkel change again. So that's why I'm saying it's for the wrong reason. There could have been there were very good reasons for stopping nuclear power because of the high risk. You could have you could have argued that, uh, but uh, only the catastrophe of Fukushima made it possible. And the state where I'm originally from, you know, uh, southwest Germany, is the only one that now has a governor from the Green Party. And it was very clear the elections were happening at the time of Fukushima. The Green Party would have never become would have never uh, be the strongest party in southwest Germany. Uh, even though it's got a sort of a revolutionary attitude there, uh, but uh, but it only I think the the polls changed dramatically after Fukushima, and the, and a lot of people voted for the Greens for that reason. Well, this is Merkel's zigzag politics that I just described. So, what can we learn from the past and for the future? I've pointed out quite a few things, but I'll sh- uh, I'll. Uh, Tell you a few others. There's a great book by Alfred Crosby who looks at energy in world history and he says that humans have shown an unappeasable appetite for energy. Um, it's enormous how much more energy we use today. You can see this on these two images. On the left, you've got a statue uh, 500 years ago that is being erected in uh, Rome. This statue weighs 320 tons, 900 men were used, and 75 horses, and circa 250 horsepowers to bring this statue or this obelisk up. This was enormous. This was one of the biggest things that would have been done 500 years ago. If you compare the energy that was used for this with the energy that was used for a uh, rocket here, this particular one has 160 million horsepower and uses it uh, uses 5 million pounds of kerosene in 150 seconds. 
So, uh, I mean, this is something that we don't often talk about, but, uh, you know, space, what we use in space, what you use, or what the military uses, I think the American military uses as much energy every day. The American military uses as much energy every day as the whole of Sweden households use in the whole year. And I haven't looked into the numbers of space, but uh, spaceships, of course, use a lot of energy. But I'm not using this picture so much to say something against, uh, you know, uh, the exploration of space. But I'm showing it to you that it's it's this is beyond any comparison. Within 500 years, we're using so much more energy uh, than anybody could have possibly imagined. And you see that the world energy uh, consumption has really started with. Uh, has to go up dramatically around 1900. Has is of course triggered by um, <clears throat> by the industrial revolution. But if you and uh, the steam engine. But if you compare this, this is an amazing curve. The two curves show energy consumption and population. So demographics and consumption of energy, energy production, energy consumption, and the demographics all go hand in hand. You will remember from the beginning of my talk when I was talking about you know, how uh, more energy was available when people settled down and had agriculture. So there is this intrinsic link between energy and um, energy production, energy consumption, and demographics, but it's, this goes all the way through history. So you produce more people, it seems, with more energy, or more energy also produces more people. <laughs> So my argument is that energy abundance has not only solved but also caused problems, and you saw that before in my case of, of American agriculture, where you solved the problem of scarcity after the world economic crisis, uh, actually after the depression of the 1930s, you thought, you know, now you're mechanizing agriculture and it's going to solve all the problems, but it created a lot of more problems. Um, it created a lot of problems also, you know, from an ecological perspective, because all of a sudden people were no longer close to the ground. If you live with your horses, with your cows, with you, if you understand animals, if you understand the soil, if you actually live there, if you're not a suitcase farmer who goes in and out, then you have a much more close relationship. Um, but this changed at that point too. So um, fears and anxieties are important. No population in the 18th or 19th century, this is what Joachim Radka argues, would have chosen a fossil-based economy if they had been presented with this option. So energy transitions are never smooth. So when we are talking today about a post-fossil uh, fuel era, many people will say it's impossible, you can't do it, uh, it's too expensive, there are fears and anxieties and people are playing on these fears and anxieties. There are some people who will say, well, you should be more sufficient. Others who say you don't have to be sufficient, but, but uh, you can actually uh, stir up emotions. And you think, if you think this is unique, it's not unique. It's always been like this in history. Every transition caused anxieties. Every transition uh, was anything but smooth. I like this picture because from 1983 to 1987 in Germany, uh, they, they uh, experimented with Grovian, a große Windanlage, a big wind plant. And they stopped the experimentation after four years. And this really threw Germany back in terms of wind energy by decades because uh, they, they gave up too early. Uh, there was not enough money invested in this. Today, of course, we, we, uh, we, we can build much better cause the windanlagen than this one, but the experimentation um, was unsuccessful in the beginning in the 1980s. I want, to, uh, want you to remember that, so uh, we need what I call slow hope. I think in a time that is extremely fast, 
where you know you have you have enormous speed uh, all over, and you have enormous amount of uh, products that we buy. I, I recently read that you know we have uh, a typical household in the Middle Ages had like forty uh, pieces in you know in Central Europe, forty pieces that you would own. In 1900, you had 400, and today you have 20,000. So we buy a lot of gadgets, and a lot of them are using energy. And we live in a, in a, in a place of extreme consumption, and of extreme... We don't need a lot of the things that we have. They all need energy to be produced. But um, I think in a time that is so, uh, you know, so speedy, everything is moving so quickly, in this time, I think what we need is often you know, more patience and slower hope. And the Grovian example shows you that. Also, um, this image of an electric car and of a, a fueling station shows that uh, energy cultures don't necessarily only come out of uh, individual ingenuity, but they often a response to increased demand. So if you, once you have more electric cars, there will be more uh, stations. So demand is, is really important in the transition of one energy to another. I'm also, I would also argue, and I think this is a very important argument, that energy costs are not necessarily negative. Uh, in history, they've oftentimes pushed innovation. And uh, you could see that in the oil crisis, even though this was a very short time, uh, a lot of new types of, even when it comes to, to cars or when it comes to, uh, I mean, if it comes to efficiency, all sorts of devices were invented within a short time as a result of the energy crisis. So high prices have helped us to understand, to deal with less energy. I could tell you something about Atom and Eve, but I won't go into detail. It's one of those films from the 1960s that shows how atomic power is a solution to everything and it's going to be so cheap you will never even be charged uh, the history of energy innovation is full of economic promises and technological hypers and an underestimation of costs and risks nobody could believe that there was any risk involved it's a wonderful little uh, story a film that you can see I think on YouTube uh, of a, a girl who dances around Atom and uh, I think you should, you should uh, look it up in order to understand the culture that surrounded atomic energy in the 1960s um, energy systems are not deterministic forces, but the result of negotiations between individuals, groups, or other agents. I believe that individuals and groups can do a lot when it comes to energy. I mean, there's no path uh, dependency. But uh, if you look around, uh, a lot of what's happening today is happening on the ground, is actually happening, and is, is started by individuals. Um, I had uh, at the Carson Center. We have we have practitioners every Tuesday. We have discussions with practitioners. This week we just had somebody from Green City, and they talk about activities that, like they, you know, if for instance some people are complaining that their streets don't have enough space for bicycles, uh, the Green City people will become active and launch. Um, a um, you know something like a I, I don't know how they call it exactly, but they will bring thousands of, of bikers to that street and show that this street should also be owned by bike bicycles. Because once you have 10 cyclists in Munich, they have the right to use a full lane. So if you bring a lot of uh, uh, you know, groups of 10 to uh, a street, this can change 
the, the perception of that whole area. So, I mean, this is just one example. I can give you 100 examples of where this would lead to policy change and which would change the, you know, there, there would be bike lanes introduced as a result of such operations. So individuals and groups or other agents and NGOs have a major, major have much more power than we often think. We're talking about, you know, Paris but, and the agreement, but uh, groups are also important. I can see that Christopher is looking on his watch, and I think I have to finish. I'm, I'm basically finished. I'm done. I'm done. Uh, no miracle energy source, but energy mixes. I think we don't. Uh, uh, we shouldn't think that there is a miracle coming up. You know, all the energy sources that we can think of have are deficient in some way. You know, you can move oil around in a way in which you can't. You know, in a car in which you can't move uh, solar power around, um, and you know, with, with, bat with batteries, etc. And wind doesn't blow everywhere. Sun is not available everywhere. There's not one regional uh, thing that that can serve the whole world. And there's not one miracle energy. We shouldn't wait for a miracle. So, I've come to an end, and I thank you. Thanks very much, Christoph, for that absolutely fascinating talk. Um, I was taking reams of notes. So um, we might open it up now for questions, Q&A. Uh, we have a roving mic, I think. Yes? Uh, so if you'd like to ask a question, maybe put your hand up and Meredith will bring you the microphone. Hi, thanks for that talk. Very interesting. Um, I'm just interested in uh, your views on nuclear power. I understand that... Um, well, <clears throat> that's a very uh, divisive topic. Uh, you seem to say that uh, Angela Merkel has backed out of nuclear power for the wrong reasons. Uh, she's done the right thing for the wrong reasons. Um, for me, uh, apart from a, a few accidents like Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima, which have resulted in, yes, a few deaths, but far, far less than what coal mining has every year. Uh, and you've mentioned that um, uh, our technology is getting improving, the safety is improving. Why is that the right decision? Why, why is it the right decision to back out? I think this is an excellent question because it shows that we have a different opinion. And uh, this, this part of my talk was very, I mean, most of my talk is very subjective, but this one is particularly very subjective. I believe that what we uh, did wrong was, you know, we, we moved into, into nuclear energy at a point where uh, there would have been a chance, there would have been an option to uh, go with, I think Canada, for instance, has different types of uh, reactors. We, we, we could have, uh, Japan and Germany chose reactors that, that are much more dangerous. And you could, you can imagine, we've only had nuclear energy for a few decades. And we've had, you know, uh, you mentioned Three Mile Island. Um, we've had near catastrophes in many places. And you can imagine, you know, a war scenario. Uh, imagine that it takes hundreds of thousands of years before nuclear uh, waste, uh, you know, loses its, its danger, and there's now a whole, um, even there's a journal dedicated to nothing but the semantics 
of uh, you know, how to explain to future generations in which language they won't speak the language that we speak, you know, what, that something is toxic, that something uh, is nuclear and can, can be dangerous. So I think we are rushing into something that will have an impact, not just for a few years. We can always say, oh, well, nothing has happened or little has happened so far. But first of all, it's, this is a question of you know, perspective. You can say a lot has happened considering you know, it has been declared as safe. Uh, but secondly, I think we should, we should uh, when we do something technologically that is so different from everything that I've shown you before, uh, there's, there is this big difference because it has an impact over such a long time. We still don't have a single storage place. You, some of you may have seen the film about the storage place, uh, you know, the final storage place, supposedly final in, in Finland where they're trying to drill uh, uh, into the ground and where they're trying to store nuclear energy. But the reality is, of course, that we, uh, we, we don't know um, what's happening 100,000 years from now. Yes, my question is about solar energy. And what do you think are the current um, underestimations of cost and benefits for solar energy? Thank you. Well, um, I can tell you from the German case that we've produced so much solar energy now that we are... Uh, we can't use gas uh, energy when it's available. In, in, the, in the summertime, in peak season, we've, we don't know what to do with our energy. Uh, in Bavaria, we've actually what we're doing now, we're actually pushing water energy up again. <laughs> you know, we, the water uh, produces energy, and then we've got so much energy to push the same water up again to produce energy again. We don't know what to do with our energy. Within a very short time, uh, we were able, with a very small subvention, and the conservative government of Merkel actually stopped it, we were able to produce so much uh, energy that uh, energy um, <clears throat> big uh, corporations were scared because they saw that the households are producing it. Uh, I I think that uh, there, there, uh, we, we should we should not you know everything that I'm saying you know this is great you know I think we should also take with a grain of salt. I realize that there are technological problems. There are, you know, there's, there, there are chemicals used, especially with uh, the Chinese solar panels. Uh, we don't know what, what to do with these, uh, with these toxics. We realize that some of the panels that have been installed in countries uh, were the wrong panels. They don't, you know, when, when uh, they are put on roofs and they have snow on top, uh, first of all, you know, you can't use the panel if there's snow on top. Secondly, uh, it may be too heavy, so they may break. But the reality is that uh, with relatively little money, uh, thousands, ten thousand, hundreds of thousands of households in, in my country have actually started to produce not their own energy for their own house, but you put it on your house, you put these panels on your house, and then they uh, can actually, uh, uh, they are fed into, into the central system. This is different in different countries. It doesn't work when you, it works more easily when you have densely populated areas. So uh, it doesn't work somewhere in, in the middle of nowhere. But I think, um, well, if you look into the, into the price, that was your question, economic question, it's, it's more expensive to produce solar energy than, than coal. But in the long run, it's renewable and it's much more clean and it's a question of values. And of, of course, Australia has one of the highest uptakes of solar PV in the world, so um, very relevant here. Uh, there was a question over here, I think, lady there. Yep. I 
think the perspective of a historian is really important, especially, as you said, patience. It took all those years to get the right sort of chimneys so that the coal wouldn't you know, asphyxiate everybody. What do you think it will take in terms of rolling out solar ovens or changing the cooking practices where we all have a self-interest, the soot from those wood fires is actually covering the glaciers of the Himalayas and creating, at certain times of the year, a huge brown cloud above India. What do you think it will take to get that innovation going? Uh, that, that's a big question. Uh, well, you mentioned patience, but, you know... Yeah, I mean, patience is not enough... <laughs> Patience is something, is, is, is something you need besides uh, changing behaviors and changing insights. I mean, you need to change cultures in order to change behaviors. Uh, in a global context, I mean, what do you do against clouds over the Himalayas? I think uh, China and India are major players. Uh, America is another major player when it comes to, you know, I think the, the, the next elections, if a Republican gets elected and they've got a, a Republican Congress and a Republican president, then a lot of what, uh, what, uh, a lot of the hopes that you might have after Paris for you know a more responsible climate politics uh, will be will be uh, nil and void. But uh, at the same time, I think if you look at what China is investing, it's it's just incredible. China is investing enormous amounts of money now, uh, and it's triggered by the smog over Beijing. And uh, I think that uh, I just, we had just had somebody from World Watch coming to our center two weeks ago, and he claimed that China is now investing more, uh, you know, to, in, in terms of money, more to avoid climate change than all the other countries of the world together. They've, of course, of course got this ideal of an ecological civilization. Uh, India is, is, a, is, a, is a variable. <laughs> we know very little about India. Indian population is rising. They, have, they, uh, they produce more food per capita in the, in the continent than anybody else. They've got um, uh, major, major problems ahead. We've got major congestions in the cities, major smog problems. And I think you know, Delhi uh, and, and other cities in India, uh, even though we don't read as much in the newspapers uh, as we read about uh, Beijing, and uh, um, uh, they have, uh, you know, they, they are facing some of the most, uh, the biggest problems, I think, so we should look at India more than any other country to see what's going to happen. And the Himalaya, of course, uh, what happens over the Himalaya is not just produced in China and India, it's something that we produce all over. And it's one of the things that always strikes me, we think that nature and culture are separate, and there may be some you know, points in the world that are untouched, but there's no untouched place, neither at the deepest place in the ocean nor the highest mountain in the Himalayas. Everything is somehow cultured. You know, we have influenced, as humans, we've influenced these spots on Earth. Uh, thank you for your talk. It was a uh, comprehensive um, historical overview. Um, what would be your forecast for uh, energy consumption and production for the next 20 or 30 years? Um, I think we will see perhaps more than before regional differences. We will see some countries that are moving forward. Uh, I think you said 20 or 30 years. I, I predict that a country like Costa Rica will be almost 100% uh, carbon-free. And other countries like Russia 
uh, will continue to produce. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they will probably not. They will. There won't be that much of a transition. Uh, I have to go back to the other question uh, that, that I just answer, answered. A lot depends. So there are variables. A lot depends on the political regimes, on the on the on the on the power players. But at the same time, I think we can see that a lot is happening on the ground. I'm an Americanist, so I can tell you we've had a mayor from a Republican mayor from a city in I think in uh, Michigan recently again in our Tuesday discussions. And I'm amazed there are over a thousand Republican mayors in the United States that are changing things on the ground. So my prediction is in 30 years, we will see in many, many places, including locally in America, uh, we, we are always you know, saying America is so bad, they have the biggest per capita CO2, uh, uh, how do you call it, emission. But I think what we are seeing are many, many, what we're going to see are many uh, initiatives locally, while at the same time other countries like India will need to produce more uh, and will need to consume more energy. So it's going to be regionally different. But the conscience, I think uh, in a way, you know, you can, you can say it's unlikely that all the goals of, of Paris will be implemented, but for the first time we've got a workable framework. And if a competition starts where people want to be more green than others, and I think that's, that's happening in some places, I think we can, we can actually uh, see that uh, uh, we will have m many more innovations and pioneering experiences in different places around the globe. But it's important to realize this is nothing that happens globally. It's something that happens in different places, differently. Okay, I think we have a follow-up question here and then a question just behind there. About 15, maybe 20 years ago, I started reading about uh, uh, speculation about the hydrogen economy whereby solar power, wind power was used to make hydrogen out of water. Hydrogen would be piped to houses, factories, substations, and burnt and turned back into water. Do you think that's a viable, do you think? You might... uh, I'm, I'm neither a scientist nor an engineer. Uh, it sounded really good. It's one of those things like cold fusion. Cold fusion is something you say, you know, it's going to happen in 50 years, but, or it's happening in 20 years, and after 20 years, say it's happening in 20 years, or in 50 years, and after another 50, or say it's happening in 20, 50 years. The same is true with hydrogen. You can actually produce it, you know, uh, very easily. You can take it out of, of uh, other, you know, chemical um, combinations uh, in, in, in a school. <laughs> you know, your chemistry teacher can, can produce it. But uh, we haven't been able, and we're very far from it, and I don't see that we're moving towards it. We're very few, far from these realizing these dreams of producing. Of course, it would be wonderful. It would, be, it would solve our problems, like cold fusion. But I don't see how it's going to happen in the near future. And, I'm, and, and I think nobody, nobody can foretell that, not even you know, scientists. They may, there's a lot of money going into these projects, and uh, people get the money won't tell you if it doesn't work. But it's also, I think, frankly, I think it's worth experimenting. Why not? Okay, I think we have time for two more questions. So there's a young chap down the back with the microphone and there's a man who's been very patiently waiting and missed the microphone, but you will get your turn after the chap at the back. Thank you. Uh, it's not actually a question, you, it's a statement. You mentioned before the toxins released from solar panel manufacturing. That's actually false. The major waste product is, in fact, salty water. Is salt water? Salty, salty water. Salty water. Thank you. As you were talking about the um, prospects for the future, um, energy transitions, um, 
it struck me that something that's very important and perhaps you might be able to cast some light on in a historical perspective is the possibility of sort of technological leapfrogging. Uh, what I mean by that is that you have um, societies that sort of miss out on the, on the revolutionary aspects of technological change or energy change and then kind of catch up when all the problems have already been fixed. Um, an example that we're having at the moment is the way in which Africa is experiencing a huge explosion of mobile phone technology and they never had fixed lines. They're also experiencing a huge explosion of um, distributed solar power technology when they never had coal-fired power stations. Clearly, a, a society like China seems to have kind of gone through the whole of the British Industrial Revolution in the space of about 50 years with all of its attendant problems massively magnified. But there are other countries, it seems, where there's a, there's a, they just miss the bad bits. Uh, would you like to say something about that in a historical perspective? Uh, I, th I think uh, this is a very good observation, and I think you can see it in history all over that you have different paces. You know, you've got different speeds and different transitions. Some societies go. You look back in the 19th century in America on the West Coast versus the East Coast. You use concrete uh, tubes, where you use redwood on the on the East Coast still. So uh, you know, wood wood is wood, wood is not. It's it's a question of what is available, uh, and but. Oftentimes, you know, uh, depending on, you know, often in today, of course, global corporations are involved that sell new technologies. Uh, and so you jump, you jump from one technology, you may double jump some transitions. So I can see that this, this is happening in different places. But again, my lesson is that uh, it's happening at different uh, speeds in different places. And I think it, it can happen exactly the way you described it, that you jump from one energy source to another and, uh, and leave out transitions. Okay, well, uh, thank you again, Christoph, for an absolutely fascinating talk. Um, I think one of the things I really took away from it was the focus on, on local and regional differences and the sort of political contestation around energy regimes. And it struck me that one of the themes that we seem to be encountering currently is this push much more towards globalisation of trade and trans-Pacific partnerships and these sorts of things which are trying to break down local and regional difference. So some really interesting discussions, I think, around energy transitions in a, in a regulatory or a, uh, a global economy situation where we're trying to get a, away from um, local difference, and I think that's a real shame. So please join me in thanking uh, Christoph for a marvellous talk, and uh, that'll be for this evening. That'll be the, the, the night, I think. Thank you. Thank you.